Funding for The Spark is provided by Capital Blue Cross, focused on creating a healthier future for our communities through innovations like Capital Blue Cross Connect Health and Wellness Centers, which provide in-person services and inspire healthy living. Learn more at CapitalBlueCross.com. The Spark is also supported by UPMC's orthopedics team, offering hip, knee, joint, spine, and back treatments. Learn more at upmc.com slash centralpaortho. Each Friday, when the Spark hosts journalists to discuss and provide insight into the news of the week. Today, we focus on two significant stories that could have an impact on Pennsylvania taxpayers. The historic court ruling that how Pennsylvania funds its schools is unconstitutional, and three special elections that give Democrats a majority in the state house. With us are WITF's Capitol Bureau Chief Sam Dunklaw and Associated Press reporter Mark Levy. Gentlemen, welcome to the program. Mark, I want to start with you when uh, we talk about this uh, Commonwealth Court ruling. I get the sense that uh, a lot of times when uh, people hear about a court ruling, their eyes kind of glaze over. Unless they're directly impacted, this one may directly impact them. It's an 800-page opinion. Commonwealth Court Judge Renee Cohn Jubilee ruled how Pennsylvania funds its schools is unconstitutional. This decision, it could have far-reaching consequences on the state's budget, the schools themselves, and taxpayers. Broad question, what impact could it have? Well, at the heart of it, the um, the plaintiffs, uh, a handful of school districts, the NAACP, and an association of small and rural schools, presented evidence during uh, a four-month trial that um, poorer school districts in the state are underfunded by $4.6 billion. Um, so that was the calculation uh, come up with by one of their experts. Um, Currently, about $9 billion goes out from the state uh, to school districts so that they can educate kids, uh, pay teachers, um, you know, fix the roof, pay the heating bill, that kind of a thing. So um, $4.6 billion is a substantial sum on top of that $9 billion or $8.5 billion, whatever it is, in, in that neighborhood. Um, the thing to know about this, though, is that an appeal is possible to the mm -hmm. state Supreme Court. Um, Republican lawmakers, their legislative leadership in the House and Senate opposed the lawsuit. Um, it has support from the uh, governor, uh, Josh Shapiro, who, while he was attorney general last year, filed in court uh, in favor of, of the case. Um, the, the other thing to know about this is that Rulings like this have been made in a number of states. Um, one, one education scholar um, told me about 30 states where judges have found that the system of funding schools is unconstitutional under that, those states' constitutions. And what inevitably happens is that lawmakers are in charge of deciding how to comply with that court order, and often they don't fully comply with it. Um, these rulings tend to have an effect to increase education funding in other states, but in the vast majority of them, um, lawmakers do not fully comply with what maybe the judge had envisioned when they ruled that the system of funding schools was unconstitutional. So what did Judge Jubilee base her decision on? So you mentioned that her decision was about 800 pages, and that reflects um, the um, mountain of testimony given during a four-month trial. 
it reflects the mountain of um, court decisions that have happened in other states. And what she found was that the school districts um, who presented the case were very persuasive in saying that um, children in poor school districts are inevitably in older, um, obsolete school buildings that are just inadequate for today's technology. Um, their curriculum, the technology they have to work with is older and outdated. They have much larger class sizes. Their teachers are less qualified and lower paid. Um, um, they may be in unsafe environments. Um, a, a number of, of schools uh, in this classification uh, tend to have to um, have fewer offerings. They have to cut classes. They can't pay teachers as much. They can't pay as many teachers. So you're finding fewer art offerings, fewer uh, uh, foreign language offerings in these in these uh, schools. And what she found was that there's no constitutional justification for the disparity between wealthy and poor school districts. And that, A, that violates the Constitution's guarantee of, of a, uh, I forget the verbiage in the Constitution, but a uh, an efficient and um, comprehensive education. And it violates the uh, Equal Protection Clause that everyone shall be treated fairly by uh, you know, the laws of, of the state. Um, the other thing that she found is that under the Constitution that there is a constitutional right to education. And um, that has not been found before in this state when there have been um, education funding lawsuits. Some, some judges in some states say, yeah, there, there's no constitutional right like that in our constitution. Some states do find that. So those were basically the three important points that she found that um, you know, the disparity is, is, is unconstitutional, it violates uh, equal protection rights, and it violates the right to, to an education. When you said that uh, you you used it, and, and this is you know something that we say all the time. I say we, not just those in the media, but uh, lawmakers, everyone. Poor districts, and you did a nice job of describing what a poor district, poorer district, looks like. But something else that is important is that many of these schools don't have the tax base. And that's right. one of the big problems because Pennsylvania relies on property taxes. It's, it's schools do for the most part. And if you don't have uh, a tax base, it's hard to find the money that you need to fund those schools. That's right. Um, when the state sends out aid to schools, I mentioned that it was in the neighborhood of $9 billion. There is a formula to send it out, but it's mostly a Frankenstein formula that has built up over the years and added parts as it went along. And it doesn't it doesn't fully adhere to the state's latest formula that lawmakers passed in 2016 that says, here are the factors through which you need to send that money out. And one of those factors is, is the local school district making an effort to fund its schools itself? Um, and so uh, the latest data we have is from the 2020-21 the uh, school district in which uh, the state data says that uh, schools spent a little over $33 billion. Of that money, over 50% came from property taxes. About a third came from state aid, and then the rest came from um, federal aid. And so when you add that up, um, there is an extremely heavy proportion compared to other states of funding that is reliant on local taxpayers and their wealth. And so the bulk of property taxes in this state 
comes from the wealthier jurisdictions. Mm. For decades, probably since I was a child, and that a few decades, by the way, uh, there have been lawmakers or wannabe lawmakers saying that we have to get rid of property taxes. Is this ruling, if it isn't, isn't appealed and it holds, is this ruling a road to, if not eliminating property taxes, at least less reliance on property taxes? The history shows us that um, getting rid of property taxes or lowering them in the state is extremely complicated because there's 500 school districts and each school district has its own profile, um, its own its own demographic makeup, its own wealth makeup, its own size, its own complications. Some districts are compact, some are extre extremely spread out, some are extremely wealthy, some are extremely poor. Some districts uh, don't want uh, to get rid of property taxes because it gives them a tool in which they control their own spending. So the wealthier districts don't want the state coming in and bossing them around when it comes to being able to fund their schools how they want to fund them. Um, but one of the propositions have been in the legislature to replace property tax money with state dollars, dollar for dollar, would represent uh, a reverse Robin Hood effect in which taxpayers across the state then would see their taxes go up and the bulk of that money would be going to the wealthy districts. Mm. So you mentioned the figure that, uh, it's an estimate by the way, of 4.6 billion was it? That would be needed? Billion, okay. billion. So, I mean, this is not something that the legislature, again, if this is not appealed, if this ruling sticks, that the legislature can just dawdle around with. I mean, they, they have to deal with it, legislature, the governor. So what happens next? Well, the legislature doesn't have to deal with it, and that, that is the lesson from other states, that lawmakers can be recalcitrant. So they can dawdle. You're talking about very complicated separation of branches issues here in which... Um, you know, the judge w essentially is left to force two other branches of our government to comply with a, a judicial order. And so in her order, the judge, Renee Cohn-Jubilier, said, I'm not going to tell you how much to spend or how to spend it. Um, I'm going to leave it up to you to come up with a, an agreement between the governor, the legislature, and the plaintiffs that is satisfactory to them. Um, that agreement never has to happen, and, and, and so the scholars I talk to who study education finance, who study education rights in all these states, the, roughly 40 states have had major education funding lawsuits, it takes um, an aggressive court many, many years to force those two other branches to fully comply. And um, there's a lot of things that can get in the way. The economy can tank and, and, and drain money from, from the state's treasury. It can drain the political will to follow through on that. Courts can simply get exhausted uh, by trying to force um, the other branches to comply. The plaintiffs can get exhausted from going back to court over and over and over again to get recalcitrant lawmakers or governors to comply. Uh, there's also elections. Elections can install newly hostile lawmakers or a governor or even judges uh, who, who don't agree with the decision and who may not fully follow through on it. So um, some of these uh, court decisions uh, in other states have precipitated decades of fights. Hmm. 
So bottom line is we may not see anything tomorrow or even within the next six months before the next uh, state budget is enacted. But that's a good segue to Sam Dunklaw. When uh, we talk about the legislature, uh, there will be a new makeup of the Pennsylvania legislature, at least in the the, uh, State House of Representatives, Sam. Uh, Three special elections finally held this week, and uh, the results are in. Democrats have a majority, a very slim majority, in the House of Representatives, right? That's right. Uh, The three special elections you're talking about in the 32nd, 34th and 35th House districts in Allegheny County handily won by the Democratic uh, nominees in those contests. Uh, And interestingly enough, another reporter had pointed out on Twitter very shortly after those uh, results were released that uh, House Speaker Mark Rossi provided finally uh, the number of session days that the House would be in. Um, uh, The chamber had been reluctant to do that. In fact, hadn't done that for uh, since his entire speakership, uh, because the, the operating rules and things like that were needed to be agreed to. So the House is expected to be back in February 21st. Uh, and the initial day that we got from the speaker uh, was the 27th. So a whole week before. Will Mark Rossi continue to be speaker? That's the million dollar question. And I think um, uh, Mark would certainly agree with me on that. Um, it seems as though most of the Democratic caucus is lining up behind Joanna McClinton uh, the House now majority leader uh, as the next speaker. There has been some indication this week as well uh, that Razi w- would potentially step down from the speaker's rostrum to allow the ascendancy of McClinton. But that's going to largely depend on what happens here in the next couple of weeks. There's um, a number of policy goals that Razi has already laid out. Um, he again signaled in a video this week uh, that he wants to ensure that a uh, lawsuit window for uh, survivors of childhood sexual abuse who have expired cases, gets across the finish line once again in the House. He's planning to again introduce a constitutional amendment, a statutory solution for that particular piece of legislation. So um, perhaps there's a compromise that's struck between McClinton and Rossi to get that sort of thing over the line, but um, it's going to largely depend on what rules are agreed to, what they look like, uh, and then uh, how close Rossi will want to uh, you know, get those policy goals over the over the finish line. Democrats will have a one vote uh, vote majority in the state house as a Democratic governor, but Republicans still have the majority in in the Senate. Uh, Mark Levy just laid out something that uh, whether it's dealt with in a timely fashion or, you know, quickly remains to be seen. But there are still a lot of other issues. Can anything get done with that divided government? It can um, when there is compromise that's offered on the table. Um, and, you know, we, we had talked um, a few weeks ago, Scott, about some of the priorities that uh, county governments have laid out, some of these things that are pressing and that need to get done. Um, the, there's a number of those issues that are pressing this year. Um, you know, these larger kind of 50,000 foot view talks on how education policy and how education spending at the state level might be changed or tweaked um, can certainly happen. And those things are going to divide along uh, the usual ideological lines. And we're seeing a lot of indication from that. Um, but some of these more pressing issues that uh, counties and that other, uh, you know, lobbyists with a lot of power in the state house that even individual uh, people throughout the state are calling for need to get done, or things are going to start to fall apart even more than they are uh, at the local and county level. So there, there's plenty of room. We only have a minute left, and Mark Levy. I know it's tough to do this in 60 seconds or left, but less. But there was another court ruling yesterday related to elections, right? There was. Um, this was spawned 
by Donald Trump's uh, baseless uh, allegations uh, that he lost the presidential election in Pennsylvania because of fraud. And so in 2021, Senate Republicans mounted what they call an election investigation. And they uh, asked for a ton of information from the state elections department. Um, and they issued a subpoena. Um, a Republican-controlled committee voted to issue this subpoena. And Democrats sued. Republicans countersued. Uh, the Democrats basically said some of this information is protected by privacy laws. Um, some of it involved voter information. And uh, yesterday, uh, a year and a half later, a Commonwealth Court judge said, uh, we're not going to force the state to give you the information uh, because you issued a subpoena and uh, the subpoena was created under your own internal rules in the legislature and you're a co-equal branch and you have ways of enforcing that subpoena and that doesn't involve seeking a court order to get it enforced. So you go ahead and enforce it yourselves through the state's um, contempt laws. And so I don't know what's next. I guess they can appeal. They can try to enforce it uh, through the state's contempt laws. 2023, and we're still talking about the 2020 election. But uh, Mark Levy of the Associated Press, Sam Dunklaw, WITF Capital Bureau Chief, thank both of you for being with us today. Thank you. Thank you.